at night when I tuck my kids into bed and, and we kind of gather around and we spend a little time at each kid's bed and just talk to them about the day. And one of my kids' favorite things for me to do is to tell them stories. And they love the stories when I got in trouble. They love the stories most when Nana smacked me with a fly swatter until the head of it came flying off. And they can't imagine Grandma that way. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, you just, you have no idea. <laughs> they love the stories when my dad caught me doing something and, and I got in big trouble. And so I tell them the story, but the story never stops there, you realize. Like, after a while, you, you realize you got to do something with that. You can't just... You can't just leave the, me in trouble when I was a kid. You got you to gotta tell them something, right? So afterwards, there comes the, the life lesson. And this is what that taught me, right? Don't do this. Or this is what that taught me. You should do exactly like that. After a while, you realize you know, when you first get married and when you first, you know, you're very selfish. And then, and then you quickly become selfish with each other. You and your wife kind of, you know, celebrate your own life and you, ha and you don't want anybody to interrupt it. And then you have kids and you realize just how selfish you are. And the whole time you've been planning that, you know, uh, here, here's the life that I want. Here's the job that I want. Here's the money that I'm going to make. And here's what I'm going to do. And here's how I'm going to live my life. And here's, you know, where I'm going to live and the house I'm going to buy and all those kinds of things. And before long, when you're sitting around your kid's bed and you're telling them stories about your life and you're turning it into life lessons, you realize... My life has just become a parable for the next generation. And really, that's what it is. That, that my life is now a parable for my kids. Both things to follow and things to avoid. And, if, and, and when you're a Christian, that's ratcheted up to a hundred now. Because now it's not only telling my kids what to do and what not to do and use my past experiences as examples of what to do and what not to do, but now I'm applying all of those things to, the, to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It wasn't just that I disobeyed my parents and don't do that because that gets you into trouble. It was disobedience to my parents was sin before God. And at some point I had to realize that I needed a Savior and so now, all the lessons that I'm learning are now being applied to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That in some ways, our lives simply become a parable for the generation that's coming behind us of what it means to actually follow after Jesus. Use my life as an example. Here are good things that I did, and here are terrible things that I did. Don't do these things. Do these things. It changes the way you read the book of Proverbs. It changes the way you even think about parenting. And when you read Deuteronomy 6, what Moses is telling the nation of Israel is you've got to do exactly that. You're taking all of the experiences of everything that you've learned in following the Lord and you're passing that on to the next generation. Your life becomes a parable for the generation that is following after you. Now the reason why I think that's important is because in the book of 1 Samuel, we know that this book was compiled years after David died. Look back in 1 Samuel to chapter 27, and look at verse 6. 27, 
verse 6. Remember David, this is just a few chapters ago, but it's been several weeks now. David was given the city of Ziklag by Achish, who's a Philistine king. And, and the author of 1 Samuel inserts this little explanation for, not only for us, but presumably for his original audience there in verse 6. It says, So that day Achish gave Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, what does that mean? That means that the day that he's writing this in, there have been many kings that followed after David. There have been many kings, and this is, explains where the city of Ziklag came and how we came to attain it. So what you have to realize, the reason why that's important, is because all of the story that is being compiled right now in front of us in 1 Samuel, this story that is the chronicle of David's life, is being compiled and put together for a reason. That David's story, being written long after he is dead, is serving as a certain, as an explanation for a certain type of kingdom that God has established through David. And you, nation of Israel, whomever is reading this book, you fall under the authority of David's line whom God established. And when he established him, here is the kind of kingdom that he established. And this is not just a story about David's life. It's not just a story about the events that took place. And how do we know that? Because as we get closer to the end of the book of 1 Samuel, all of the things that happened to David are happening in the opposite way to Saul. And the author of 1 Samuel is putting David and Saul up next to each other on purpose. And we're seeing all of the things that are happening to David. And then we see, in contrast, all of the things that happen to Saul. See, this story that we're reading in 1 Samuel is not just about the life of David. It's not just about the stories of David's life and things that happened to him. But it's about life under the Davidic monarch. It's about life in the kingdom of God. What does it actually look like? What are the good parts about it? And in what ways did it fail? What are the things that David did that were good and that we should celebrate and that, that is actually what God is establishing? What are the things that he did that were sinful? In the last chapter, David was conscripted into the army of the Philistines. And he was told by Achish, you're going to be my bodyguard for the rest of my life. And the first assignment you get is to go into battle against Israel. So David now is caught between a rock and a hard place. He either has to go into battle against Israel and kill them, which he's already said he's not going to do. Or he can turn against the Philistines and kill them, which right now provide his only means of safety. How is he going to get out of this jam? Well, God delivers him from this jam because he brings the kings of the Philistines along and they say, we don't want David here. you got to send him back. Whew! All right. Small little protest and then I'm gone. Okay? So David's celebration, we find, lasts for just a little while. So in this passage, what we're going to see is David and his men are coming back to the town where he's from in Ziklag, where he has had some safety there from Achish. 
And in this passage, we're going to see at least three things. There's plenty more than that. But at least three things about life under God's Davidic king. What it actually should be like. And then we're actually going to see some opposite things as we think about the rest of the book of Samuel that it's like to live outside of the kingdom of God. First thing that we're going to see here is that David is the king to whom God speaks. David is the king to whom God speaks. Look at verses 1 to 4 here. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. They had, and had and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. So the celebration we find out lasted about three days. The celebration of, God, of, of God's deliverance of David from Achish and from this predicament that he was in. The men, him and his men get up their stuff and they go and they travel for three days back to Ziklag. And there's, I'm, you can only imagine the picture of them celebrating how the Lord had delivered him from the hand of Achish and from this predicament that he was in. And that celebration begins to wane as they creep up over the horizon and they see Ziklag off in the, dif- off in the distance and smoke billowing up from it. Everything that they had was gone. All of their wives, their sons, their daughters, all have been captured. And they've all been taken away. Wait a second. Is God for me? Or is He against me? You know the question has to be coming to His mind. Certainly that question is coming to the minds of His men. And how do we know that? If you look at verse 5, it said... David's two wives had also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter of soul, as people are wont to do as soon as tragedy strikes and they have no one else to blame. They have to find someone. But you understand that this is really the first time in David's leadership, that it's ever really come into question. This is really the first time that his men have ever wanted to do something about his leadership over them. And not knowing what to do or who to lash out against, they look at the leader and they think of stoning him. Can you imagine how this actually feels to David? who's been anointed king, he's been given a band of of men, God has provided for him in every way, and even in the most recent jam, God has picked him up and taken him out of it and delivered him, only to come home to see his hometown, all of everything that he has, on fire. His town burned to the ground. And not only that, but all of the men who have been with him through thick and thin have reached the tipping point. They're looking at David, And they're thinking of stoning him. So what does David do? Look at the last half of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. 
And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Himelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought him the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake. You shall overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook of Besor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besor. What is it that David does in response to the questions of his leadership? It says he strengthened his hand in the Lord his God. We've seen this phrase earlier come up when Jonathan actually comes out to him when David is again in the midst of despair because he's running from Saul and he doesn't know what to do. And Jonathan comes out and actually strengthens him in the Lord his God there. Essentially what's happening here is a moment of encouragement where David goes before the Lord, he prays to the Lord, and he seeks the Lord's encouragement. God, I thought you were for me. I didn't know that I was going to come back to a town that's smoldering and everything that we have is gone. And yet, instead of just leaving himself in his tears, and instead of looking down at his own navel and, and growing in despair, he turns to the Lord and he prays, he seeks the Lord, and the Lord gives him encouragement. And how does that encouragement come? Remember the ephod. The ephod was a garment that the priest wore, and on the ephod were two stones, Urim and Thummim. And this, the two stones essentially provided the person using those stones with a yes or no answer as to what the Lord's will was. And so David asks of the Lord, should I go and should I, should I, I go after this band of, of uh, you know, whatever, bandits that took all of our stuff? Should I go after them and pursue them and will I overtake them? And the answer comes back to him, yes. Now, do you already notice a difference from what's happened with David to just two chapters ago, what happened with Saul? Remember, Saul is right now, as David has encountered his city, Saul is right now across the country, gathered in his own camp over against the Philistines who are gathered against him. And Israel and the Philistines are about to go to battle. And it's at this moment in time, as far as the chronology goes, when Saul is trying to seek an answer from God. Shall I go up against the Philistines? And if I go up against them, will I overtake them? Do you remember what the answer that God gives back to Saul is? Silence. So what does Saul do? Well, he grabs his leading men and takes them down, to, down south and goes to a witch to try to get her to give him counsel. And remember specifically, Saul tells us that the Urim is not working. I'm not able to get the yes or no answer from God like I thought I was able to. This is not an automatic thing. So when they go to this witch, he asks him to uh, ask her to bring up Samuel, and Samuel finally does give him an answer. And the answer that he gives him is, "You are going to die, you and all your sons tomorrow." But now, flash forward two chapters, David comes back into a far worse predicament. All of his people are captured and gone into the hands of the Amalekites. 
He gets the ephod and he asks the Lord and the Lord immediately responds, go take them. Victory is in your hands. It does serve as a little bit more ironic that the people that he's going up against are the Amalekites. The Amalekites, if you'll remember, just many chapters ago, back in chapter 11, was the group that Saul was supposed to go after and kill utterly. Did he listen? Did he destroy them? No. Instead, Saul walks away from the Amalekites, disobeying God and taking with him plenty of possessions along the way. This group of people that David is going after to fight should have been dead long ago, but because of the disobedience of the king, they weren't. That disobedience led to the silence that Saul receives when he asks God for direction on the Philistines. But the point is that we're seeing come to a head right here at the end of the book of 1 Samuel is that there is one king that God speaks to. And that king is not Saul, it's David. And why? Because David listens. David listens and obeys. But second, we see that David is the king through whom God rules. David is the king to whom God speaks, and David is the king through whom God rules. Let's look at verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins when he had eaten. His spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. Now pause right there for just a second. You realize that right now in the story, they don't know who this Egyptian is. They simply find a man who is stranded out in the desert, who's been out in the desert for three days, who has not had anything to eat or anything to drink, and they nourish him back to health. They don't realize yet that this Egyptian is going to be the one that leads them to the band that raided their town. They don't realize that yet. They are simply out of the goodness of their heart, nourishing this man back to health. And David, look at verse 13. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? All right, he doesn't know who he is. To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the, Cher of the Carathites, and against which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Oh, really? <laughs> what luck! <laughs> what good fortune I've stumbled upon. Will you take me down to this band? I'd like to talk with them. And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hand of my master, and I will take you down to this band. So David finds this Egyptian who's lost and who's been starved for three days and three nights, and how does he treat him? He treats him better than his own master treats him. Here is a slave 
who got sick and his master abandoned him. And here comes David, who has zero loyalty to this guy and has no idea that this guy is going to be of use to him and treats him better than his own master does. Do you see that? Nourishes him back to health in spite of how his own master did. But then look what happens in verses 17 uh, to 20. All right, verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold... They were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing. Whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the, pe and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. So not only does David go down, but you notice that the band of the Amalekites, they're celebrating. They're singing and dancing and making merry because they have taken advantage of all that was the Lord's. They have robbed David and his, and his camp at Ziklag. But David goes down and not only defeats them, but defeats them so soundly that the 600, only people that were able to escape was 600 men. They escaped on the backs of camels. But do you realize 600 men was how many David took? And not only that, but that was winnowed down to only 400 men that he then took into the camp. The people that fled were more than even David's whole army. So that tells you just how many people were down there who had, who had raided Ziklag. And yet, David and his men go in and rout them thoroughly, top to bottom. And not only that, but they're able to spare every single item that was taken and then some. Now they're able to actually gain the spoil that, that, uh, comes, that was part of their property, of all the things that they had raided from other nations and all the things that they owned. So they're coming back now richer than they were when they went down there to begin with. So when we ask the question at the very beginning, as David leaves from Achish's side and comes now back to the town of Ziklag and sees it all smoldering with fire, the question naturally has to come to mind, God, are you for me or are you against me? And his men turning against him say, I think we should stone David and just be done with this guy. And yet what we find out just a few days later, David is so blessed by the Lord that he's actually bringing back more than he ever had to begin with. He has so much in terms of spoil now that he's going to begin distributing that wildly. David is just going to make it rain all over Judah from all the stuff now that he has collected because the Lord is blessing him. Now let's flip over to the other kingdom and just think about for a second what's happening right now to Saul. Not only is he surrounded by Philistines, the Lord is not speaking to him. And he knows now, because of the spirit of Samuel, that when he goes into battle against the Philistines, he 
and his sons are all going to die. He's going to be removed from the throne, and David is going to take his place. So if we're looking at who God rules through, we're seeing very firmly established by the author of 1 Samuel, it is David through whom God is ruling. That Saul is done with, within 24 hours he's going to be dead. And David is more than equipped to take his place. Why? Because God is actually speaking to him. And God has established David's rule. Not only that, but remember, this book is being compiled for a group of people who never met David. But who do they sit under? Who is the king over Israel to the original audience who's getting this for the first time? It's one of David's great, great, great grandsons. So what's being described for the nation of Israel who's reading this book for the first time is this is the ideal kingdom that God has established and it is through David's line that God is speaking and it is through David's line that God is ruling. So what does that mean for you, nation of Israel? Submit to his rule and his reign. That David's line is the king through whom God rules. Saul will not be victorious. But the last thing that we see here is that David is the king through whom the people are blessed. David is the king through whom the people are blessed. Look at verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone to David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So they bring back their spoil, and there's 200 men that stayed behind. Now, I can't imagine how exhausted those men were. Maybe they didn't have wives and children, and maybe they didn't have things that were captured. I can't imagine that to be the case, but maybe that was what was happening. But for one reason or another, they're too weak to even cross the stream. Now, they've been going at a pretty good clip for a number of days now. Remember, David has left the side of Achish. He's traveled for three days. They come back. They see it on fire. They, they pretty much immediately pick up and they go down to this band of, of, of pirates. So they've been going at a pretty good clip. And these 200 men are too exhausted to cross the stream and they stay behind. And so when they get down there and they take all of the spoil, they come back. Do you notice in the previous part of the passage what the men say about the spoil that they take? What do they say? Look back at verse 15. It says, uh, um, 
Oh, no, they, they take him down to the band. Uh, it's, anyway, they say it's David's spoil. There it is in verse 20. This is David's spoil, they say, as they come back into the land. So when they get, they meet these 200 men who are across, look at, look at what the spoil you've got. They're celebrating. All right, good job, guys. Now let's divide it up amongst ourselves. Wait, 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 just a minute. The 400 men that went with them want to keep it all for themselves rather than divide it. But what is David's response? There's a statute that is supposed to be adhered to. In Numbers 31, it's detailed. When you go and you uh, make a raid and you win a, a territory for the Lord, the spoil is then divided amongst Israel. And the army that went down to take it gets more of the spoil than the rest of the nation. Okay? Now, here's this band of 200 people who were too weak to go into the battle and who stayed behind, but yet are also part of the military. So the question then is, do they get what a normal civilian would get, or do they get what the army should get? The people who went with David are actually even more stingy than what the law is requiring. I don't want them to get what the civilians get, I don't want them to get what the military gets. I want them to get nothing. Why? Because they didn't go with us. And they didn't do it. But do you notice what David's response is? David's response is not, this spoil belongs to me and I can do with it what I want. David's response is, this spoil belongs to the Lord and He gave it to us. What we're distributing doesn't belong to us. God has given this to us, and so with it, we are going to bless other people. David is not only adhering to the law and dividing the spoils among the military, but he's being even more generous by taking the spoils and dividing it amongst military that didn't go with him into the battle. Be precisely because he sees the generosity of the Lord meaning that he should also be generous to others. You get that? Now he understands that because the Lord has blessed him, through David, all the rest of the earth should be blessed. You tracking with me so far? David is not only obeying God's law, he's extending it, and he makes it a statute from this day forth and forevermore that everyone who is part of the military gets an even division of the spoil, regardless of whether they go into battle or not. So David is not changing God's law. He's actually making God's law even more generous. He's applying it in a more generous way because he's seeing how generous God has been to him. So in other words, through David... All the rest of the nation is going to be blessed. And how do we know that? Because then in verses 26 to 31, he goes back and he starts sending the spoil out across the land. Everybody, take a part of it. Everybody, take a little bit. Here's a little bit for you. Here's a little bit for you. And whom does he send all of this to? He sends it to the ones who took him in and who gave him shelter. He sends it to the ones who shared with him. He sends it to all those who were friends with him. There is a promise going all the way back to the book of Genesis. Chapter 12, God comes to Abraham. And God tells Abraham, 
I'm going to make of you a great nation. And he gives him a promise, and many promises, but one specific promise. In chapter 12, verse 3, do you remember it? He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. David is coming back with the spoils of war more than he can even count. And all of a sudden, he begins to bless all those who blessed him. The Amalekites who cursed him were cursed. And through David, all of the tribes of Israel will eventually be blessed. Through David, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. See, God is slowly bringing to fruition the promise that He made years ago to Abraham. But how do we see this flipped in the reverse of Saul's kingdom? See, David's kingdom is now being characterized by generosity, by blessing, by benefit, by victory, by caring and concern to the the Egyptian servant that he finds out in the desert, to blessing of all sorts. But when you get to Saul's kingdom, it's being characterized by stinginess and by paranoia. Do you remember just chapters ago, Saul goes into battle and he leads his people into battle and they have some small victories and Saul wants more victory. And so what does he declare? A fast. No one shall eat anything. Instead of blessing, which Jonathan, his son, says, we should be eating. We should be drinking. What are you doing? And Saul says, no, we shall be fasting. But it's also characterized by paranoia. He's surrounded by his men, and he he calls him into question, which of you have followed after David? He's chasing David out into the wilderness. He thinks David is after him and wants to kill him, so he's going to preempt him, and he's going to kill him anyway. He goes and defeats the Amalekites, and instead of burning the Amalekites to the ground, what does he do? He takes the possessions for himself. Saul's kingdom throughout this entire book has been characterized by stinginess and paranoia and not listening to God. But David's is now characterized by blessing, by listening to God, by God speaking to him, by following after God's commands. See, what we come to see that the author of 1 Samuel is doing as we get here to the end is he's painting a picture of what God's kingdom is like under a Davidic monarch. But then, just as David represents what God's kingdom should be like, Saul also is a shadow or a type of another kind of kingdom, and it's the kingdom like all the other kingdoms in the rest of the world. Essentially, what the author of 1 Samuel is doing is setting up God's kingdom over and against all the rest of the kingdoms that are out there. It could be the kingdom of Saul leading a bunch of Israelites characterized by not listening to God, paranoia, fear. Or it could be a kingdom like the Amalekites leave their servants 
dead for three days out in the wilderness without food or water to get better. See, Saul represents a kingdom like all the rest of the world has. But if you go back in the pages of 1 Samuel, what did the people ask God for? A king like all other nations. And what did they get? A king like all other nations. You want a king like the Amalekites have? You got him. You want a king who doesn't listen to me, who doesn't know me? You want a king who doesn't follow after me or listen to my commands? You got him. And what is the result of that? Fear, paranoia, stepping on one person's head to get to the top, seeking to kill and destroy. You got a king like all the rest of the nations. And so now, a community of people are reading this book and they're asking themselves, which king do you want to follow? Do you want God's king? Or do you want a king like all the rest of the nations have? Well, here's where that ends. It ends in fear. It ends in paranoia. It ends in discipline. It ends in punishment. But you understand that David is not the be-all and end-all. David is not perfect. David is going to sin. Because what you have to realize is that David is the very beginning of the kingdom of God that is being established. And the culmination would be in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His great, 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 28 times grandson who is going to come in, and what we see as having read through the pages of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, as we've seen all the story of the Old Testament unfold, we have seen two things about David's kingdom. We have seen good things, where David is generous and kind, and he's a blessing to the nation, and we have seen bad things, where he follows after his father Adam where he's sinful of heart and he sees a woman bathing on a roof and he takes her for himself and kills her husband. We've seen him fall. We've seen him sin. We've seen his sons come after him and try to take over his kingdom. We've seen them sin and fall into disrepute. We've seen all kinds of things over and over, both good and bad, because essentially the kings of Israel that followed after David all became a parable of what to do and what not to do. They became a story to Israel. This is what God's kingdom looks like. And you get just a little window of it. You get it through a very clouded lens. But you can see what God is going to establish in His future king. You can see the kind of kingdom that He is going to put down on the ground. But even though we see it, it's only in veiled terms. We see David's blessing. We also see a lot of sinful things. But then comes a king in the New Testament who follows after the line of David. Every king between David and him, we have hoped for blessing and we have not received it. And yet here in the New Testament comes Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, who instead of being, instead of falling into stinginess and paranoia and fear, listens to God completely follows his law to the end, never sins, 
and takes the righteous rewards that he deserves as the king. And what does he do with it? Does he keep it all for himself? Does he tell the weak 200 on the other side of the river, you can't have any of this? No. He distributes all the spoils of his righteousness to everyone but himself. He goes to the cross instead, and he takes the weakness of the 200 and the arrogance of the 400, and the pride of the army, and he dies for it, recognizing it as sin. And he takes the punishment that they deserve, and instead of giving them that punishment, he gives to them the spoils of his righteousness. You understand? You understand that David and all of the kings from David until Jesus become a parable of what we want to see in the future king. That we ultimately get the fuller picture of in Jesus Christ. But you understand that because of that, the question that was posed to the people who are receiving this book for the first time is the same question that comes to you and me now in a New Testament era who are following after David's great-great-grandson. And the question is, do you want to live under his kingdom and under his rule, or do you want to live under the rule and the kingdom of Saul and the Amalekites and everything that is opposite of the Davidic king. It's the same question. Are you going to fall under the reign of Christ or are you going to fall under the reign of Saul? Which one do you want? You are going to be ruled by someone and something. If you become the end and of yourself, that all I live for is me, it's a part of the kingdom of the world, and it just like the Amalekites, and just like Saul, it will reach its death. It will be given into the hands of the Davidic king, Jesus. But if by faith you place your trust in Christ, you repent of your sin, and you come to him in allegiance and worship, and fall under his leadership, then there is certain victory to come. Will it be in this life? Will we have the job? Will we get the freedom from cancer? Will we get the healing? Will we get the benefit and the blessing and the, and the money and all of those kinds of things? That's not what His Word promises. His Word promises an eternal life in an age to come. What is it that we're looking for? What, where does our hope actually lie? You understand that what we're being told here in 1 Samuel is what the New Testament community is being told in the New Testament too. Do you want to fall under King Jesus? Or do you want to fall under the kingdom of the world? The choice is yours. But if Jesus, then you must come to him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we as a people who are called after the name of Christ would come to celebrate His death for us, His resurrection, that it would come to be the identity that we're known by. That all other joys, all other things that the world could possibly offer, all other treasures and trinkets that are available to us, that cause us to look at this world as if it is the end, as if it is the only thing to live for, 
that all of those would pale by comparison to what we have in Christ. I pray, Father, that we in an Emmanuel Baptist Church would come to celebrate. That we would see the joy that we can have in Christ. That we would come to celebrate in the resurrection and the community that we live in now in the church. Whose hearts are bowed to Jesus as King. And who serve Him all the rest of the days of our lives. Pray that you would lead us to that kind of celebration. In Jesus' name, amen.